you can find your way to the book of Amos. Amos comes right before the book of Andy. Just kidding, bad joke. Um, well, we're going to look at Amos for the foreseeable future on Sunday nights. We are working our way through the minor prophets. And so Amos is next up. Again, the minor prophets are not minor in terms of importance. Every word of the minor prophets is important because it's a word from the Lord. But the minor prophets are generally shorter in length. And so, and I've been saved um, for many years now. And I, I probably, I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon out of Amos in my life, actually, just being around the church. Probably in Sunday school, went through Amos. Um, but the minor prophets are often ignored by the church a lot of times. Um, and so we're going to change that trend because we're going to learn about the minor prophets. We've gone through Hosea. Most of you have gone through Hosea. And Joel, we just finished up. And now Amos is up next. Now, I was going to have a nice little PowerPoint and stuff. It didn't work out. That's okay. I'll probably have a handout next week uh, just to kind of, you need a little bit of geography uh, to understand really the beginning of Amos. We'll see that. I'll help you through the geography uh, tonight. But I'm um, probably going to have an outline so you understand what's in the book. I have the outline up here. I may just send it to you all tomorrow by email so you have the outline in front of you. It's a pretty simple outline for this entire book. We're, we're going to see in Amos, Amos is going to address the sins of other nations. Um, Really, that's chapter 1, and the first little part of chapter 2, we'll get through that tonight, actually. And then Amos will go on and address the sins of Israel, and I think that goes from about chapter 2 to about chapter 6. And then he's going to give some really visions, and this is what Amos gets. We'll see that in verse 1 and 9. He's going to get some visions of coming judgment, and that takes up really from 6 through the most of Amos chapter 9. And then the last little part of chapter 9 are visions of restoration, which all the minor prophets do. All the minor prophets address the restoration of Israel. It's a consistent theme, and Amos will do that as well. But I'll probably send an outline to you so you have it and can have it in your Bibles. Um, Again, we will begin tonight looking at the sins of the nations around Israel, and then we'll look at Israel's sins kind of end our night, just begin to look at Israel's sins. But that outline will be up, and I'll send you a map. You can print all that off and, and bring it, because some of that will be helpful information as we get into some more details of, of the book of Amos over the next few weeks. Now, let me begin Amos by giving you a little bit of South Carolina history, maybe a little bit of U.S. history. Uh, you could probably say that the most famous politician that rose to the highest rank that was a native South Carolinian was John C. Calhoun. Uh, he became vice president, and he served actually two terms as vice president under two different presidents. That's an oddity for sure. Uh, but Calhoun was a very polarizing man. Um, the reason he was so polarizing is because his views and opinions were very strong about some issues. And Calhoun made a name for himself in Washington and in that segment of American history prior to the war between the states, the Civil War. People either loved Calhoun or they hated him. Now, what was interesting about Calhoun is that he wasn't your typical politician in the sense of born with a silver spoon in his mouth, went to a great academy, you know, was trained for American politics. Literally, Calhoun was born in Abbeville County. Uh, he was born in that time, Abbeville County, when he was born, was still a frontier region in South Carolina. It, it was really on the cutting edge of the, the South Carolina frontier. And Calhoun was born to a father who farmed in Abbeville. He, he was a very politically minded father, but he, had a, he was a farmer by trade. And Calhoun's father died when Calhoun was only 14 years old. And 
It was up to little John to kind of care for the family farm, and they had five other farms in Abbeville County, and so he was a very busy young man trying to care for the farm, uh, trying to tend to other farms in the area. Um, Yet, because he was such a bright teenager, his family, in fact, his brothers urged him to go to college, and he did. He went to Yale. Uh, He went to Yale. He graduated at the top of his class at Yale, and then he came back to South Carolina. Well, he got his law degree, came back to South Carolina, was going to practice law, farm, and he actually ran for office, was elected to the House of Representatives, and he made his way to Washington. And Calhoun would say about himself, when, when he got to Washington, he was nothing more than a farmer in a suit. Uh, he really saw himself as a farmer in every sense of the word, and yet he served uh, in U.S., uh, the House, for, for many years. Vice President came back, served in the, in the Senate. Um, he really left his mark on American politics for about 40 years. Now, I give you all that not for a history lesson, but when I first went through the book of Amos many years ago, getting an overview of it um, to teach a sermon as an overview of the book, uh, when I learned about Amos, uh, he's one of the minor prophets. We get a little detail about his life. We don't know anything about Joel, uh, very little about Hosea, but, but Amos gives us a little detail about his life. And when I learned who Amos was, my mind immediately went to John C. Calhoun. You know, Calhoun always said, I'm a farmer in a suit. That's all I am. And you could say about Amos, he was nothing more than a farmer with a pulpit. That's who he was. He came from a really southern region in Israel, uh, a a town by the name of Tekoa, very barren, desolate region south of Jerusalem, even south of Bethlehem. Um, And yet he was a brilliant man, as we'll see in this book. Um, He was really good with language. We understand the Holy Spirit inspired Amos, but he used great illustrations um, he's going to write in a, in a very easily understandable way, but he's going to be very detailed. Um, he was also a guy, though, in similarity to John C. Calhoun. Even though Amos was from southern Israel, from Judah, God's going to send him to preach to northern Israel. He's really going to be a southerner preaching to the northerners. And I'll just tell you, they ain't going to like it. We're going to see. They're gonna eventually going to tell Amos, you just need to go back home, boy. Um, but that's what Amos was called to do. And so the Lord raised him up. He gifted him in a certain way, even though Amos was essentially a sheep herder and a farmer, and yet the Lord used him in a mighty way. Now, I don't want to draw too many comparisons between Calhoun, John C. Calhoun and Amos. John C. Calhoun was a slavery advocate. We would certainly say that's not absolutely against what Scripture teaches, and John C. Calhoun also didn't believe in the doctrine of hell. Uh, He denied. He was a Unitarian. He believed that everybody eventually goes to heaven. So I don't want to make too many comparisons in your mind between John C. Calhoun and Amos. Amos was a righteous man, loved the Lord, uh, preached God's word, taught God's word. And and we're going to learn about Amos. We'll hear his personality as we go through this book. It's really, it it comes out. You can hear some of the agrarianism, agricultural kind of illustrations. And so Amos is going to be all over the pages of this book. Now, with that in mind, rather than take you through a really long introduction, let's just let the book of Amos kind of unfold for us. And I'll set up some other things you need to know about the book as we look at the first couple verses. Now, again, this first section of Amos will run from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3. If you want to outline for the book, this is one possible outline. Amos 1, 1 to Amos 2, 3. And you can entitle this, Seeing the Sins of the Surrounding Nations. Seeing the Sins of the Surrounding Nations. And under that outline, really verses 1 and 2, I call a roaring introduction. This is a roaring introduction to the book of Amos. And so just look at verse 1 with me, and we'll work our way through all of chapter 1 tonight and a little bit of chapter 2. So Amos chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, 
which he beheld in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, it's interesting, as you think about Amos opening this book up, he opens it up really describing his occupation, which, again, is not always common in, in the prophets. We don't know a lot about some of the prophets, but we know a little bit about Amos because he tells us the Holy Spirit inspired Amos to include his occupation. He says he's a, a sheep herder from Tekoa. Now, the Hebrew word here for sheep herder is not the normal word for shepherd. There's a different word for shepherd. And Amos could have used that word, but he uses a little different word. It really, it could be a sheep dealer. He would even say kind of normal English. He's, a, he's in the sheep industry. That's kind of his occupation. He's around sheep. Now, obviously, that would include shepherding, caring for a flock. But it seems that Amos wanted to make sure as he writes his prophecy that nobody confuses him with a shepherd of people. In other words, uh, Amos, because in the Old Testament, shepherd is associated with a preacher, a prophet, a carer of people. Um, the book of Ezekiel talks about the false shepherds of Israel. And, and so it seems that Amos wants to say, I'm not one of those guys. I'm literally a sheep herder. I'm in the sheep business. I'm not a professional preacher. I'm not a professional prophet. That's, that's not who I am. In fact, um, flip over to Amos 7 real quick. Amos 7. Let me find this. Yeah, a Amos 7 verse 14. Farther along um, in, in Amos' prophecy, Amos 7.14, it says, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, he's not saying I'm not a prophet. He's saying I wasn't a prophet, wasn't born to a prophet. I became a prophet because God called me out of the sheep fields and away from growing sycamore figs. Now, while we're there in, in Amos 7, um, as Amos, again, wants to distance himself from a professional shepherd and care of people, um, he also mentions the fact that he raises and sells sycamore figs. Um, you may not be familiar with the sycamore tree bearing figs, but there are sycamore fig trees in the Middle East. And it's a very difficult uh, crop to grow because the figs, you ought to look it up. It's a very interesting picture. If you look up a sycamore fig, it, it's a really tall tree. They can get up to 150 feet in the air. And the figs don't grow on the end of the branches. Um, they grow actually on the bark of the tree, right off the bark is where the figs are produced. And so if you grew sycamore figs, it was difficult just to get them off the tree. And so what he's saying essentially is, look, I take care of sheep and I try to pick figs and sell them. In other words, it's not a very easy life. I'm poor as somebody in the sheep business, but I'm also living a difficult life trying to raise sycamore figs. And so I think the clear picture here that the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to us is that Amos is not anywhere near the central aspect of Judaism, right? He's not from Jerusalem. He's not a mover and shaker in Israel. He is truly somebody who lives out in the middle of nowhere, uh, taking care of sheep and raising sycamore figs. Oh, by the way, Zacchaeus. What, what kind of tree does Zacchaeus climb? Climb a sycamore tree, right? So these tall trees. And so this is what Amos does. And again, he lives in Tekoa, a very desolate region on the edge of the wilderness in southern um, Ju Judah. And so, again, he's not the poster child for a prophet, right? He's not like Moses who grew up with a great education uh, in Pharaoh's home, right? He's not Paul who was raised... Uh, under a great Pharisee. His father was a great Pharisee. No, 
Amos says, I'm far removed from all of that. I'm just your common, ordinary, everyday guy who the Lord called to speak his word. Now, you can go back to Amos 1, um, and we'll stay there the rest of the night. And so this is who Amos is. Now, in the second half of verse 1, we get some important information about the time that Amos preached and taught and shared God's word. We get kind of the political and the spiritual setting of Amos' ministry. Right, It says it was during the days of Uzziah, Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. Well, that lets us know immediately that Amos is a prophet during a divided kingdom. And I think most of you all understand that, but just to quickly review, as Israel began as a nation, they began as a united kingdom with God as their king. It was a theocracy. One God, one king, they're united as a nation and in Israel, uh, in the book of Samuel, says, give us a king like every other state, every other nation around us. God gives them Saul. Saul gives way as he disobeys the Lord. God then anoints David. He becomes the second king over united Israel. David's followed by his son Solomon, who's a king over united Israel. But after Solomon, the kingdom divides. And it divides really into two segments, Israel in the north. It retains the name Israel. And then Judah in the south. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. And that happens, that split occurred around 931 B.C. And those kingdoms would have two kings each that reigned over those two kingdoms. All the kings of the northern kingdom are evil, and most of the kings of the southern kingdom are evil. But that divided kingdom would come to an end when the northern kingdom fell in 722. And so we know that Amos, because of that, is a prophet between 931 and 722. But more than likely, he's a prophet in the 700s B.C., prior to Israel fall into the Assyrians. And so he sets it up, the political scene, the state of the nation. And again, why is the nation divided? Sin. Sin is plaguing Israel. Sin has plagued Israel for some time. Their division was a judgment of God. God's trying to send them a message about the consequences of sin. They don't get the message. They continue to live in sin and disobedience. And so God begins to send his prophets to Israel to warn them of coming judgment. And so Amos comes and he preaches. And as I said, what makes Amos unique is he's a southerner, but he's preaching to the northern kingdom. Tonight he will address Judah. That's the southern kingdom, his, his area that he lives in. And they will get about five or six verses. And then God will directly speak through Amos to the northern kingdom for the rest of chapter 2 all the way to chapter 6. And so he's going to be, uh, have a very unique ministry in that he's preaching to people of the northern kingdom. And again, this will not sit well. Uh, we saw Amaziah mentioned right there. He will be a priest over the northern kingdom. And he'll essentially tell Amos, hey, hit the road, buddy. Go preach to your own people. Get out of Israel. We don't want to hear from you. But Amos will be faithful. He will finish his ministry to the northern kingdom. And he will certainly be faithful to deliver God's message to them. Now, before we leave the second half of verse 1, I want you to see something I think is very important to understand the political setting that, that Amos was preaching to. Now, Uzziah, he's the king of the southern kingdom. That's where uh, Amos is from. Uh, Judah's not any better than Israel, but Israel's sin is more pressing. In fact, they will fall first. And so as we consider uh, which king is in which place, it's very important to consider who's the king of the northern kingdom. And it's a man named Jeroboam. Now, I want you to turn back to 2 Kings. Keep your finger. We won't be back in 2 Kings very long, but I want you to see something. 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings 14. Uh, the book of Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, gives us a history of the kings of Israel. 
And in 2 Kings, we're looking at the kings of the divided kingdom. And one of those kings was a man named Jeroboam. So 2 Kings chapter 14, uh, verse 23. All right, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. So here is Jeroboam. His time of reign in the northern kingdom, Samaria is considered the capital of the northern kingdom. His time of reign over Israel was 41 years. That's a long time to be king, right? So Jeroboam was a long-serving king over Israel. He had four decades of influence in Israel, okay? But I want you to note something very important. I've already kind of given it away. I want you to note the spiritual nature of Jeroboam. This is verse 24, He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. And so, though he reigns for 41 years, he's doing evil in the sight of the Lord for all 41 years in Israel. And remember, um, sin flows top down, right, politically speaking. And so, if the king's sinful... The people will be sinful. Now, you would think, if you don't read any farther right here, you would think that a guy doing evil in the sight of the Lord for 41 years and reigning over the nation of Israel would be despised by the people in the nation, right? This is God's nation. They were given God's laws. They have God's festivals. And they have a king that does evil in God's sight. You would think the people would despise him. But you'd be wrong. Look at verse 25. The people loved Jeroboam. And why did they love him? Verse 25 tells us why they loved him. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath Hefer. Why did the people love Jeroboam? This is going to sound again very corny. They loved him because he made Israel great again. That's why they loved him. He made the country bigger, he expanded the borders. That's why they loved him. They didn't care about his morality, which is a great lesson. Y'all already know this. Just look at the recent history of, of American politics. If America prospers, the people could care less whether the leader's moral or not. Right? And that was certainly true in Israel. This guy's doing evil for 41 years, but because he made Israel and the borders great, he was loved. And so the unholiness of the king led to the unholiness of the people, right? In fact, if you look back up at verse 24, it talks about his father, Jeroboam the first, and it says that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, made Israel sin. In other words, there's a direct connection from political leadership, spiritual leadership, down to the peoples and their immorality as well. And so here is Jeroboam, a loved king, reigning for 40 years because he's expanding the borders of the nation. The people are prospering politically. The the people are prospering economically. Jeroboam's a happy king because he's bringing great prosperity to the nation. In fact, the nation under Jeroboam hadn't prospered like this since David, right? David had grown the borders of Israel. But Jeroboam, again, is growing Israel strong politically, uh, economically. And when life is good for the people, they don't care about the morality of their leadership. But again, God does. God cares greatly for the political leadership, the morality of the politicians, but also the morality of the people in the land. So what does the Lord do? Well, he sends a series of prophets. And Amos is just one of two prophets that mainly go to the northern kingdom. 
right? Amos is designed to speak specifically to Israel. Now, the last word, you can go back to, to Amos 1. The last word of verse 1 mentions an earthquake there. We're not quite sure when this earthquake occurred. It was a major earthquake. Zechariah mentions the same earthquake that happened during the reign of Uzziah. And so it was a major earthquake in Israel, but we don't really know exactly when that was. But it's probably put there by the Holy Spirit because of the next line in verse 2, right? Earthquake, right? Ground trembling. But look at verse 2. And he said, this is Amos' ministry, Yahweh roars from Zion. Seems to be kind of a play on words, right? There's an earthquake two years later, but prior to the earthquake, Yahweh is roaring. And so what is the message of Amos? What does the Lord have to say to Israel? And he said, Yahweh roars from Zion and from Jerusalem. He gives forth his voice and the shepherds pasture grounds mourn and the top of Carmel dries up. Now, when we see the roaring of Yahweh, the roaring of the Lord, it's indicative of judgment. We saw this last week in Joel. Yahweh roared against the nations that had mistreated Israel. But this time, the Lord is actually roaring at Israel. There is judgment coming to Israel. They are about to be judged. And what you see right there, the shepherd's pasture grounds to the top of Mount Carmel. There's a lot of opinions of why Amos described it this way. But likely that's a reference to the entire range of Israel, right? You think about a very narrow country that runs from north to south. The, sh the best grounds for shepherding were in the south, even where uh, Amos tended sheep, right? Those are some of the greatest grounds. Beersheba is very southern Israel. That's where the patriarchs raised sheep. And then Mount Carmel is a mountain at the very top portion of Israel, uh, at the very top, almost in the border of the Mediterranean Sea. And so the picture here is Yahweh's roaring. He's roaring from Jerusalem. That's the center of Judaism. That's the center of the nation of Israel. And his roar goes all the way down south to the pasture grounds and all the way up north to Carmel. Right? In other words, God's judgment is going to come and no part of Israel is going to be spared. The south will get it down to the sheep pastures all the way to Mount Carmel. In other words, judgment's coming. And again, that, does, that is true. God would judge the north first, but he would also judge Judah. The northern kingdom would be carried off by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. And so Yahweh is giving Amos a message of judgment. Yahweh is going to judge the sins of Israel. Now, an interesting thing happens here. right? In verse 2, we see really the major focus of Amos' ministry but then in verse 3, the Lord's going to address the sins of the nations around Israel. Now, I'm not going to spend a long time here. Um, I'll kind of help you with the geography, and we'll kind of get through chapter 1 pretty quick. There's really not a lot to see. I mean, in the sense of God's going to name some sins in the nations around Israel, and then he's going to say, I'm going to judge in this way because of those sins. And I'll help you understand why he addresses the nations around Israel before he gets to Israel. I think that will become clear when we get to chapter 2. So let's kind of run through these. Here's some sins that the nations around Israel are committing. It begins in Amos 1 verse 3. Uh, I call this a roaring indictment, right? We had a roaring introduction in verses 1 to 2, and now we see a roaring indictment against the nations around Israel. And this will, this will run all the way to chapter 2 verse 3. Look at verse 3. Let me read down to verse 5. Thus says Yahweh, for, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not turn back its punishment because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Haziel and it will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. I will also 
break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter of Beth Eden. So the people of Aram will go into exile to Ker, says Yahweh. Now, one quick note about God addressing these nations. I want you to understand, I think it goes without saying, when we think about Scripture and God addressing the sins of Israel, or when we think about our own day and God addressing the sins of America, understand God hates the sins of all the nations. Right? God hates sin everywhere. All the nations belong to the Lord. It's not that God has an especially hatred of the sins of Israel. God hates sin in all the surrounding nations around Israel. And that's important for us to remember, right? God hates sin, no matter where it's committed, no matter which ethnicity commits it, no matter which culture commits it, no matter what language they speak, right? God hates the sins of all the nations. And so we see the first nation addressed here is Syria, also known as Aram. Now, if you look, if you picture Israel, right, in your mind's eye, running north to south, uh, Syria Aram is kind of to the northeast of Israel. It's a bordering nation. The capital of Syria is Damascus. You see Damascus mentioned twice here. And then you see a few geographic regions of Syria mentioned, the Valley of Avon and Beth Eden. So this is a a quick address to the sins of Syria or Aram. And the focus of God's judgment that's coming to them is because Syria slaughtered people in Gilead. Now what is Gilead, right? Again, Israel runs north to south. You think of the Sea of Galilee at the top, the Dead Sea in the bottom, the River Jordan runs in between. Well, to the east of the River Jordan is Gilead. It's really made of three tribes of Israel. Um, Half the tribe of Manasseh's there, Reuben's there, and I think it's Dan. I may be wrong about that. Hold on, I have it here right quick. But Gilead is a region associated with Israel. Yeah, Gilead, uh, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh. Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, half of Manasseh. Now, what had Syria done? Well, they had marched south to Gilead, and they had slaughtered some Israelites. In fact, it mentions uh, instruments of sharp iron. This would be sometimes when you were threshing grain. We've talked about threshing grain. You would have a heavy instrument you would drag, and it seems like they slaughtered people with these sharp instruments. There was bloodshed from Syria, from the Syrians in, in Gilead. And so what does God say? I'm going to judge you because of that, right? We're going back to the Abrahamic covenant. What does God do? Blesses those who bless Israel, curses those who curse Israel. And since Syria had brought trouble to Israel, they would feel the judgment of the Lord. Now, what you may notice in this opening address, and it will be repeated through all these nations, including Israel, the opening line says, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. That's not pointing out a specific number. It's not there to say it's, it's three and then there's four. The idea is there's multiple reasons for God to punish the nations, right? If you said, why do you need to eat a cheeseburger tonight? I'd say I could give you seven, eight, nine, ten reasons I could eat a cheeseburger tonight, right? It's just kind of a, a wordplay, right? It's not just the brutality of the Syrians against Gilead. There's three other reasons. There's four other reasons. There's an infinite number of reasons. But the picture here is clear. Judgment is going to come to, to Syria because of their treatment of, the, uh, of those in Gilead. There's judgment upon the house of Haziel, you see in verse 4. He's the king of Syria. There's judgment upon their fortresses, their citadels, their palaces in Ben-Hadad. 
And then in verse 5, the gates of the capital city will be broken and the end result is that Syria will be overrun and taken off into captivity. Now you see the exile to Kir, K-I-R. Most people think that's a region of Assyria, which would be to the northeast of Syria. And so in other words, because they attack those in Gilead, because they attack those in Israel, now attack will come upon the Syrians. All right, let's move to the Philistines. This is verses 6 to 8 of Amos 1. Uh, Thus says Yahweh, for for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not turn back its punishment, because they took away into exile the whole community of exiles to deliver it up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it will consume her citadels. I will also cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will even turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says Lord Yahweh. Now most of you know the Philistines because you know the story of David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. Um, You see the reference here to Gaza. So if you're looking at Israel on a map... This would be a a nation to the southwest of Israel, right on the Mediterranean coast. The Philistines loved the Mediterranean Sea. And they were a constant thorn in the flesh of Israel, all the way back to the time of Saul and David. However, what does Amos speak of? He speaks of recent sins of uh, those of the Philistines. Most notably, the Philistines had captured some Israelites in battle, and they had sold them to the Edomites. That was not the normal course of how war went. If you captured uh, people in war, you would return them once the war was over. But they had sold some Israelites into slavery, and they had sold them to the Edomites. And we'll learn about the Edomites in just a minute. So what does Yahweh call for? He calls for judgment upon the Philistines. He's going to burn the wall of Gaza. He's going to capture the capital city of the Philistines. And he will bring death to the inhabitants of the area. This is God's judgment upon the Philistines. All right, let's look at the third nation in the crosshairs of God's judgment. This is Phoenicia, another seafaring nation uh, to the northwest of Israel, also on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Verse 9, thus says Yahweh, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not turn back its punishment because they delivered up the whole community of exiles to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre and it will consume her citadels. Same thing, right? You had the Philistines in the south capturing Israelites selling them to the Edomites, and the Phoenicians in the north doing the same thing, fighting with Israel, capturing Israelites, and selling them to the Edomites, right? And yet, they were not supposed to do that because what you see right there, it says they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. David and Solomon had made a treaty, for lack of a better word, with uh, the Phoenicians. And they said, we're not going to give you trouble in Tyre, and so we expect no trouble from y'all, and yet... When they captured Israelite soldiers, they sold them also as slaves to the Edomites. So what is God going to do in Phoenicia? He's going to bring judgment. Now Tyre again is the chief city of Phoenicia. So what is God going to do? Bring judgment. Tyre is going to experience the wrath of God. Her walls and her places would burn up and open the city up to attack. A fourth nation facing judgment of the Lord is Edom. This is verses 11 and 12 in Amos 1. Thus says Yahweh, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn back its punishment. Because he pursued his brother with the sword while he corrupted his compassion. And his anger also tore continually and he kept his wrath forever. 
So I will send fire upon Taman, and it will consume the citadels of Basra. Now the Edomites are descendants of Esau. Uh, You may remember Jacob and Esau from the book of Genesis. Esau was a hunter. Esau was a gatherer. Jacob liked to stay under his mother. He liked to take care of the house. Jacob was a deceiver. He deceived Esau of his birthright for a cup of red stew. And so Esau likely had red hair. He was probably red in appearance. The Edomites are descendants of Esau. That is what Edom is. Edom is made up of those descended from Esau. And Scripture's clear. God loved Jacob and hated Esau. And so there's a division there. And yet, Jacob and Esau tried to make amends in their life. They met again. They didn't murder one another when they came together again in the book of Genesis. But the descendants of Esau always had it kind of stuck in their crawl about the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob. They just always had a problem with Israel. They waged war against Israel. Israel fought against Edom on a number of occasions. And such fighting was not pleasing to the Lord, right? It was literally brother, brother's descendants fighting against another brother's descendants. And, and what does Scripture say right here? It was the anger of the Edomites that was not pleasing to God. They could not let wrath go. They were an angry people. They were a bitter people. And so God's going to judge them. They lost compassion. What does anger do? It makes you lose compassion. Anger just squashes compassion immediately. And that was true of the Edomites. They were a people without compassion. And so God's going to show no compassion to them. If they're not going to extend compassion, God's done with extending compassion to them. He's going to bring judgment. And so you see the judgment. Their cities will be judged to Mon and Basra. Now, Edom, if you looked at Edom, it was southeast of Israel, down below the the Dead Sea, kind of south and eastward of Israel. And so we're looking at literally all the nations that surround Israel so far. All right, a fifth nation is Ammon. This is verses 13 to 15. This would be east of Israel. Uh, Yeah, east of Israel. Now look at verses 13 to 15. Thus says Yahweh, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon and for four I will not turn back its punishment because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. So I will kindle a fire at the the wall of Rabbah and it will consume her citadels amid a loud shout on the day of battle and a storm on the day of tempest. And their king will go into exile. He and his princes together, says Yahweh. The Edomites were descendants of Esau, but the Ammonites were descendants of Lot. That is Abraham's nephew, Lot, in the book of Genesis. And so there's a connection here from the Ammonites to Israel, yet the Ammonites were also not friends of Israel. They also were a thorn in Israel's flesh. And verse 13 lays out a particularly gross sin. Now, sometime recently, in the time of Amos, the Ammonites had also attacked Gilead, right, this area lying east of the Jordan River. And they literally tore babies out of the womb of women in Gilead. And what was the point? The point was, as it says right here, to extend their borders. In other words, if these people can't have babies and we have a lot of babies, we'll outnumber them. We'll overpower them. Our borders will grow and their borders will shrink. And again, this is a clear sin against the Lord. And so what does God do? Killing babies in the womb is murder. Sound familiar? And so God's going to bring judgment on the Ammonites. Yahweh's going to tear down the military defenses of the Ammonites by burning their walls and fortresses. And then he will send their king and their princes into exile. And then we're going to chapter 2, and this will be the last of the surrounding nations that Amos addresses. 
in verses 1 to 3 of Amos 2, thus says Yahweh, for three transgressions of Moab and for four I will not turn back its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. So I will send fire upon Moab and it will consume the citadels of Kerioth. And Moab will die amid great rumbling, amid a loud shout and the sound of a trumpet. I will also cut off the judge from her midst and kill all her princes with him. Now up until this point, it's been pretty clear. All the nations have had specific sins against Israel. And yet here, God's going to judge Moab because they burned the bones of the king of Edom. So what's going on here? Well, if you look back in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 3, I'm not going to take you there, but 2 Kings 3 mentions a time when Israel and Judah were waging war against Moab and Edom joined in to help Israel. They formed an alliance, Edom, Israel, and Judah to fight against Moab. And at the outcome of that war, it seems that the Moabites killed the king of Edom and burned his bones. Right? It's a clear sign of disrespect. Now, you would say, well, that's not disrespect against Israel, but in a sense it was. God blesses those who bless Israel. He curses those who curse Israel, even to relationships. And so we see here, once again, Moab facing judgment from the Lord because they sinned in a great way with someone who had found an, formed an alliance with the people of Israel. Moab, by the way, is the land that Ruth was from in the book of Ruth, right? She's a Moabitess. And so, once again, God calls judgment upon this Moabite area and amongst their leadership, right? Same kind of pattern. Sin, in fact, many sins, specific sin, judgment, right? That's the pattern of Amos' preaching about the nations. And at that point, we're in Amos chapter 2. Amos is done addressing the nations around Israel. Now, understand... The normal course of a prophet is to speak of Israel's sins and then to speak of Israel's restoration. But here Amos opens with the sins of all the nations. So why did he do that? We don't get a specific answer in Scripture. I'll give you my best shot at it. Number one, when, when Amos finished addressing all the sins of all these nations around Israel, everybody in Israel was cheering, right? That's right, Amos. You tell them, right? That's preaching, brother. Right? Give it to them, Amos, right? I mean, there's an amen chorus that day in the church when Amos is letting it loose about all the nations of the world. I'm sure people are clapping, you know. If Amos preached in a charismatic church, which he didn't, I mean, they're lapping the building right here, right? You know, he's done all these nations, everybody, I mean, it's just a free-for-all. And so Amos gets their attention for a specific reason. If you remember the story of, of David and his sin, God sends Nathan to David after David's sin with Bathsheba. And Nathan comes in and gives David a great story about a man with just one sheep. And somebody came into town and his one sheep was taken, right? And, and David says, I can't believe that. That man ought to die. And what does Nathan say? You that man, David. It's kind of the same principle here in Amos, right? I'm sure Israel's listening intently going, yes, Lord, judge these nations. And now what is Amos about to say? Israel, you're just as guilty. You're just as guilty, right? You're just as guilty as all these nations around you. In fact, I would say this. Israel is actually more guilty than the nations around them. And why is Israel more guilty? Because Israel was God's nation. He gave Israel his law. He communicated with Israel. He was a fire. 
He was uh, a smoke, right? God led Israel out of Egypt. He revealed himself to Israel. He spoke to Israel. He gave them his word, gave them his laws. They carry a greater responsibility than all the nations around them, right? Because of their incredible privilege in the world. And so God's now going to say, because you had such a high privilege in the world, the judgment that comes against you will be much greater than the nations around you. Now, I want to read uh, verse 4 and verse 5. We're not going to get very far into this tonight, obviously, but... Amos is going to begin to address Judah first. And I want to read this and make a few comments about this. I think it's very important. But look at verse 4 of Amos 2. Thus says Yahweh, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn back its punishment, because they rejected the law of Yahweh and have not kept his statutes. Their falsehood has also has led them astray, that which their fathers walked after. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it will consume the citadels, of Jerusalem. What makes Israel's sin greater, what makes their guilt greater, is that they sinned against knowledge. They sinned against knowledge, right? They were given the law of God. God doesn't lay out a specific sin. He lays out the most glaring sin. I gave you my law and you sinned against it. That's why Israel bears a greater responsibility and a greater judgment. Uh, this is Numbers, Numbers 15, if you want to make a note, Numbers 15, 29. When God's given his law, reiterating his law to Israel, he talks about the difference between unintentional sin and intentional sin. Right? Listen to Numbers 15. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandments. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. Now understand, all sin, all sin brings guilt. But there's greater guilt for those who sin with the knowledge of the truth. The New Testament addresses this, right? People who trample the blood of Christ, right? They've heard the gospel. They know the truth. And yet they refuse to obey Christ. The same is true, right? It sins, as the book of Numbers says, that these are sins of defiance, right? In our home, we raised our kids, right? There was punishment for things that they did wrong, but defiance brought the worst punishment, right? That brought the spanking because it sins against knowledge. It's don't touch the cookies, Okay, that's defiance. And so it brings the worst punishment. I mean, this is where Israel and Judah were in their history in the days of Amos. They knew the Lord. They had knowledge of the Holy One. They knew His law. But what does it say? They broke it anyway. Now understand, again, uh, those who do not believe the Lord all go to hell. They don't believe the word of the Lord. There's a certain level of punishment here. And we're going to see a certain level of earthly judgment. Israel had rejected the law of the Lord by not living according to what God had said. And what follows, really here, from verse 4 in chapter 2 all the way to verse 6, are an elaboration of how Israel transgressed the law of the Lord. Now, if you look at Judah, Amos focuses on their departure from truth. The end of verse 4 says that their lies or falsehood have led them astray. Now, what does that mean? There's a little bit of debate here about what that means. 
I simply think it's a reference to their idol worship. They were a nation who followed after false gods. They followed after idols. They followed after lies and deception. And we don't have much time, but, but turn to, I'm almost done, but turn to Psalm 40 real quick. Psalm 40. I want to show you this because I think it's very important to see this. Psalm 40. Um, this is a psalm of David. David is writing, uh, affirming his trust in the Lord. Uh, psalm 40. Uh, verse 1, David writes, I hoped earnestly for Yahweh, and he, and he inclined to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a high rock. He established my steps. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in Yahweh. Most of you know that passage, very popular passage. He'll set my feet on the rock. He'll put a new song in my mouth. And then look at verse 4 of Psalm 40. How blessed is the man who has made Yahweh his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who stray into falsehood. In other words, if you want to be blessed, trust in the God of truth. If you want to be cursed, turn to a God of lies. Right? There's a simple uh, formula for blessing in the world and also cursing. And the word, this is what I want to point out, the word in Psalm 40, verse 4, for liar or falsehood is the same word in Amos 2.4. Right? You can go back to Amos 2.4. Right? Their falsehood has led them astray. Same kind of word that you see in the book of Psalms. In other words, Israel was being led into more lies because they were worshiping a God of lies. They were worshiping idols. They were deep in idol worship in the time of Amos. Right? They were following after false gods. Yes, they affirmed Yahweh, but they just added Yahweh to their whole buffet of gods they had in their lives. He was just one among many gods. And so God is warning them, right? Judgment is coming because you're a people of falsehood. You're leading others into lies through your false worship. And what does Amos say you're doing just like your forefathers? Israel had a history of worshiping idols, Right? Going all the way back to the golden calf. As soon as they left Egypt, well, they built a golden calf. And so this has been the history of Israel as a nation. And now in the day of Amos, they're doing the same thing. So what does God say? Same judgment. In fact, look at the judgment. Jerusalem's going to fall. Right? There's going to be fire. There's going to be a, a destroying of your citadels, your forts, your palaces. And judgment will come. And it came to Israel really in three stages. They began to be carried off around 616 B.C. And it ended in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came and trampled them underfoot. And that is a preview of that, that what, is what Amos says. But this is all he says to Judah. Now, at this point in the book of Amos and his preaching, I'm sure the northern kingdom is feeling really good about themselves. They're thinking, man, everybody around us is getting God's judgment. Even Judah's getting it, but, you know, not us, right? It's like the kid that doesn't get the spanking. You're like, I mean, he's all happy. I didn't get a spanking. You just spank him because he's happy. Nobody else got to, everybody got to spank him but him. But that's exactly what's going to happen to Israel. Israel is clearly guilty of so many sins. And Amos is going to lay these out over the next few weeks for us to look at. And you're going to see so many parallels between the American church, the worldwide church today, and Israel in 700 B.C. It's going to make your head spin. And it simply comes down to a lot of false worship and no compassion. Now, let's just kind of look at this really quickly. Well, I'm going to see one sin tonight. But look at verse 6. I'll read down to verse 16, but we're only going to look at verse 6 tonight. So I know your stomachs are churning. Mine is too. Look at verse 6 and follow down to verse 16. Thus says Yahweh, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not turn back its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. 
Those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the humble. And a man and his father go to the same young woman in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet, I, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. Though his height was like the height of cedars and he was strong as the oaks, I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. And it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And I led you into the wilderness for 40 years that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your choice men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares Yahweh? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I am weighted down beneath you as a wagon is weighted down when filled with sheaves. So fight, so, so flight with perish, so flight will perish from the swift, and the strong will not instill his power with courage, nor will the mighty man make his life escape. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape. Nor will he who rides the horse make his life escape. Even the most courageous of heart among the mighty men will flee naked in that day, declares Yahweh. Now, that begins to kind of open up a pattern of sins in Israel. And again, I'm only going to give you one. The first sin really mentioned here in verses 6 and 7 is one that's going to dominate the book of Amos. We're going to see this over and over again. And it's simply the oppression of the poor. Israel had lost their compassion for the poor. They had lost their compassion for the poor. Now, Amos says very clearly in verse 6 that Israel sells the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Now, God had given Israel specific instructions on how to care for the poor. There's always going to be poor among you. Jesus affirmed that in his ministry. It's always been true in a fallen world. You will always have poor people. The idea of bringing everybody out of poverty is fool's gold. And billions of dollars have been spent by our own government trying to eradicate poverty. It's not going to go away. The world's fallen. There's sin in people's lives. There's always going to be poverty. There's always going to be trouble in the world. And so God addressed that to Israel. You can make a note here. Leviticus 25. We're going to probably turn to this again next week. But Leviticus 25 lays out some guidelines for dealing with the poor. I just want to read a portion of this to kind of help you understand verses 6 and 7. It will be done. Leviticus 25, verse 35. Now, if a brother of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to you falter. The Hebrew says if, with his, if his hand with regard to you falters. And the, 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 the point there is... If you have a brother who falls into poverty and he owes you some money and he can't give you the money back, right? That's what this is addressing. What do you do with a brother like that, right? A fellow Israelite borrows some money from you. He's in poverty. and He can't pay you back. How do you handle it? Here's what verse 35 says. Then you are to sustain him like a sojourner or a foreign resident that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest nor your food for gain. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. A principle that God repeated multiple times in the Old Testament in dealing with poverty is compassion and care. And it's based on the fact that God was compassionate to Israel. You know, the New Testament talks about the principle of forgiveness. Right? Those who are, have been forgiven a great amount, sometimes they'll go kill somebody who owes them just a little bit. So God says, look, 
You're compassionate to the poor because I was compassionate to you. You were a poor nation and I showed compassion to you and brought you out of Egypt. And then the second principle that God gives for dealing with the poor is financial support. I mean, Leviticus 25 says it clearly. Verse 35 says, if a fellow Israelite owes you money and can't pay you back, you take him in and you care for him. That sounds so contrary to human nature, right? And yet that was God's instruction to Israel. The poor in Israel were not to be objects of scorn, but objects of care. And what Amos is going to tell Israel, in these chapters we're going to look at, Israel, you've forgotten all of this. You're taking advantage of the poor. In fact, you're selling people indebted to you for money. Instead of taking them into your home and supporting them, you're taking them in so you can sell them as slaves. I mean, it was debtor's prison in Israel, essentially. As people owed money were, were sold. And that, in fact, that's what this is addresses right here. They sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. What's that mean? That means it was so bad in Israel that if you had an Israelite borrow the money to buy sandals, a very inexpensive item, and couldn't pay you back, they were taking that Israelite who owed them for some sandals and they were selling them into slavery. In other words, it didn't matter what was owed. It didn't matter the amount, how big or how little. Wherever they had an opportunity, Israel was taking advantage of the poor and they weren't showing compassion. And so God says, I'm going to act without compassion when I act towards you. And Amos is going to warn Israel of this over and over and over again. And we'll stop right there for tonight. So we're going to see these things repeated. There's going to be a lot more in the verses in front of us next Sunday night as we see more sins in Israel. Let me just give you three quick thoughts, and these will be quick. You can hold me to it. So what can we kind of pull from Amos for our hearts tonight? Chapters 1, part of chapter 2. Number 1, God uses the common man to spread his truth. Look, if a guy from Tekoa who takes care of sheep and grows figs can speak for the Lord, certainly we can. I mean, here's a guy in the middle of nowhere, and yet God used him to speak his truth, live his truth. I know this is a cliche. I've seen it. And it is cliche and whatever. But there's so much truth. Bloom where God plants you, Right? Wherever the Lord has you, just be obedient to him and teach his truth. God will bless you. He blessed Amos for doing that. Number two, God warns before he judges. When you look at the end of the Bible and you look at all these prophets, God didn't have to send one of them. He didn't. He had told Israel the penalty for sin. And sin was coming, but what does God do all along the way? Warning after warning after warning. I mean, God doesn't have to warn before he judges, but he does. In fact, he's warned the world for 2,000 years since Christ went to the cross that he's returning. God is filled with compassion. He brings warning. Amos is just an example of that. And then number three, God judges without exception. When you read Amos and God talks about the judgment of all the nations, I can assure you there will not be one sin that won't be judged by the Lord. We have a short memory, right? We have a short memory. We can't forget, we forget the sins we commit against each other. Uh, um, we certainly remember when people sin against us, but not forever. But I can assure you, no sin escapes the Lord. And that's a fearful thought. It really is. That's all the more reason to run to Christ. That's all the more reason to have all your sins forgiven in Christ. If God's judgment is complete, go to the one who offers complete salvation from that judgment. And that is Christ. Let me pray for us tonight. Father, thank you so much for a time together in your word. We've covered a lot of ground tonight, Lord. And what really stands out to us tonight is not only your judgment, but your compassion. You are a long-suffering God, and we're thankful for it. For many years, we walked in rebellion. And Lord, if you had taken our physical life, we would have seen hell. 
But Lord, you were patient and kind and gracious. You looked over our sins until you gave us the faith to believe in Christ. And so we're grateful for it. And now, Lord, as ambassadors, as people who have a message in our hearts and on our lips, Lord, help us to be faithful to share it. If Amos is just a farmer, certainly you can use people like us to go out and declare your truth to the world. So encourage us to do that. Equip us to do that. And, Lord, provide opportunities for that even today and tomorrow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.